Hey, if you were here yesterday, it was, it was a real treat with Peter J. Williams. Um, how many of you guys were here for the breakfast yesterday? A bunch of you guys. See, the Sunday night people? Serious. Serious folk. It was great, man. Uh, among other things, he starts out by slapping up on the screen a picture of the old 1611 King James Bible, a text uh, relating different things from the reign of King Hezekiah. And he just kind of read through that and a lot of little details in there. Uh, the city of Jerusalem surrounded during Hezekiah's reign by Sennacherib, but not captured. Uh, paid a couple of different fines uh, to King Sennacherib. The, um, and it was interesting. So there's that. And then he made the point, okay, this is the 1611 King James Bible. This is well before any archaeology ever which basically started with Napoleon Bonaparte. I mean, there just was no digging up and archiving. So predating these, any archaeological findings, there's all these details in this account in one of our Bible books. And then, lo and behold, we discover uh, several things uh, from the time period, uh, international uh, accounts that match up in very specific detail with the Bible account. And, and it, obviously the point there is uh, a lot of that, that, those particular details would be kind of boring to us and not a lot of life relevance other than, than to say it's a trustworthy book. Uh, when you hold the Bible in your hands, you're holding a book that, that tells the truth. And if it's reliable, I think is his point, if it's reliable in small details from 2,600 years ago, it's a pretty reliable book. Well, tonight we're going to continue with our series on the languages of love. And our text tonight is one that is very familiar to you, even if you are not a believer. If you just watch TV or watch the movies, this text is familiar to you because it shows up in pretty much every TV or movie wedding. Of course, we're talking about 1 Corinthians 13, right? Now, it is not just a text about weddings or for weddings. Uh, in fact, it was not written in that context at all of a groom and a bride exchanging their vows. Um, if you dig into the text at all, you find this text is written to a church uh, in the first century. That was a mess. I mean, Corinth, just read any part of First or Second Corinthians, church is a mess. Um, and it's into that mess that Paul's words to these believers are written. And that's why I, you know, I like the idea of, hey, we're gonna, the first century church. We want to be the first century church. I mean, the idea, but when you get into the reality, we certainly, I don't think, want to be like this first century church. Because Corinth was, was kind of a train wreck. Paul had to address all sorts of things that, frankly, I would be embarrassed to have to address um, issues of incest and members of the local congregation suing each other and all sorts of stuff. But let's go to 1 Corinthians 13. It's into that mess that Paul writes these words inspired by the Holy Spirit. If I speak in tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries... And all knowledge. And if I have a faith that can move mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give all that I possess to the poor and surrender my body 
to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Now, we're going to read a little bit more, but I do just want to stop there because there's a, there's a thought there before he moves on. He's telling these folks, these church folks, who did fight about tongue speaking and spiritual gifts and a hierarchy within the church. You read that as you move into chapter 14. He's telling them that whatever spiritual giftedness you have, even miraculous gifts that you might have, they are worthless if the motivation isn't love, if the heart behind the exercise of those gifts is not love. He says you can speak tongues, you can speak prophecies from the mouth of God, you can have that faith like Jesus described that tells a mountain to move and it moves. Without love, none of that matters. And I just kind of, re- I just kind of want to stop because we, we're so familiar with that text, right? I mean, we've heard that text so many times in so many weddings. Just think about that. And then he moves from these extravagant spiritual gifts or these miraculous kinds of gifts and knowledge. He moves into the realm of faith. He says, without love, faith falls flat. You can have that faith that moves mountain. Without love, falls flat. Now, acts of service. Well, love, you know, is, is giving, right? Love is helping someone out. Maybe. Maybe not. He says, you could give all that you possess, every single dollar, all that you possess to the poor. Let's take it another step. He says, you could, you could throw your body on the flames, sacrifice your body to save another. But if there's not love in that giving and that offering, doesn't amount to a hill of beans. He says, I gain nothing. I gain nothing. So I guess we could say love is rather important. Verse 4. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. And it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, it always trusts, it always hopes, and it always perseveres. Now he kind of returns back to that thought that he opened the chapter with. He says, love never fails. Where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I become a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now, he says, we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. 
Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. The greatest of these is love. Now last week we started this series on Sunday nights, The Languages of Love. And my hope, my prayer is that we will become fluent in the different love languages um, so that we can do a better job of fulfilling what is the greatest of these and a better job of fulfilling the commandment that Jesus gave us to love our neighbor as ourself because nothing is more important than that. The Apostle Paul just listed, I think, everything he could think of. Uh, faith, hope, uh, knowledge, prophecies, giving, Love's above all of that. Um, so, of course, he's just piggybacked on Jesus when Jesus said two commands, love God, love your neighbor, those, everything else depends on those, everything else depends on love. But here's the thing we saw in last um, week's lesson, that love can get lost in translation. In, in other words, the way I choose to demonstrate love or, or show love, someone else may not receive it as that. Different people experience love in different ways. For some, it's when they get gifts. And you may be married to one of these people. You may know one of these people. You may work with one of these people. Uh, honestly, this one's pretty easy. If someone feels loved when you give them a gift, you can, you can give gifts. A box of chocolates, a scarf, a subscription, a new car. Um, <laughs> that gift tells that other person that you love them, that you value them, you appreciate them. That's what they feel when they receive that gift. You took the time, you took the expense to select the right gift for them, to pay for that gift, to give them that gift. And the message that they receive is, man, you love me. Uh, for others, it's through words that they experience and feel love. Someone tells them, I love you. Um, someone writes a note explaining why they value that person. Man, you, you just mean so much to me. What, what you did the other day just touched my heart, and you're, you're an amazing person, and, and they're just blessed by those words that they receive. Um, anyway, there are five principal love languages that Gary Chapman talks about in his book, Lo The Five Love Languages. And we talked about these last week. We'll put these up there. Um, the five love languages. The first is words of affirmation. The second is quality time. And then receiving gifts, acts of service, and physical touch. Some people just want a hug. You know, some people just want a pat on the back or a hug. And whatever love language you speak... Um, one thing I think we can all agree on is the primacy of love to God. It's not just, it's not just something we want or we enjoy. It's something we need. We were made by God to need love. We need to be on the receiving end of love. We need to be on the giving end of love. We need to be in relationship with other people where love predominates. That's how we've been hardwired by God. That's how we've been made. Um, and so here's what Chapman wrote uh, about this basic human need. He said, love is the most important word in the English language and the most confusing 
Both secular and religious thinkers agree that love plays a central role in life. Love has a prominent role in thousands of books, songs, magazines, and movies. Numerous philosophical and theological systems have made a prominent role for love. Psychologists have concluded that the need to feel loved is a primary human emotional need. For love, think about this, I like this part. For love, we will climb mountains. We will cross seas. We will traverse desert islands and endure untold hardships. Without love, mountains become unclimbable, seas uncrossable, deserts unbearable, and hardships our lot in life. I would say that's overly dramatic, except I agree with every word there. I think it's spot on. Um, They certainly fit those words with what Jesus taught and what Jesus lived out in his ministry that nothing is more important for us to learn than to learn to love others. Um, We need to be loved when we are children. If we aren't loved as children, it's widely accepted in the the psychological community that you're going to have issues as you transition into adulthood. There will be likely serious psychological issues, emotional issues, and relational challenges going forward if you didn't experience love as a child. And then as we grow into adulthood, this, this need doesn't vanish. This need doesn't go away at all. Uh, the lack of love is captured by some of the most terrible words in the English language, like loneliness and isolation. And that perhaps is why solitary confinement is, is that worst form of punishment in prison. And so we need to be loved. We need to love. That's wired into us. And God is love. God is love. Before we entered the picture, before human beings ever walked the earth, God is love. God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, existing in a perfect relationship with one another, a oneness. And the fact that our God is triune, that He is three in one, and that And that we were made in the image of this relational God suggests, once again, it's part of our DNA to love and to be loved. But we talked about this last week, just a little review. Not all loves are the same. Uh, Even in the New Testament, you've got different uh, words that are used which represent different Greek concepts of love, phileo, eros, and agape. Um, all get translated, unfortunately, I think, into English. They usually get translated just in this word love um, because they're very different. Phileo is a love, a brotherly love. Um, The love that you have in family, it's also that affinity-based love where you share common interests, where you like the other person, you enjoy being with them. Uh, Romantic love is eros, of course. We get erotic from that word. Um, The sexual connection, that's also translated into English as love. And then agape, which you've heard before, that really special divine love, unconditional love, 
no strings attached love. And I believe that every heart longs to be loved with that love, with that unconditional love. Um, Because no matter how beautiful, no matter how heartfelt and genuine, all of the other kinds of love, manifestations of love, are just footnotes on that one, on agape. It is the purest form. It is the source. The other things are beautiful, but they're offshoots of that agape. And so, the truth is, I don't think this would be a shocker to any of us, um, we tend to get accustomed to the lesser forms of love, the lesser versions of love, the, the versions of love in a lot of the relationships we experience or we see around us are definitely not no strings attached. There are conditions it's like a contract almost. Um, you uphold your end of the bargain, I uphold my end, then, then we love each other. You, you fail somehow, then all bets are off. Very much strings attached kinds of love. Um, and some of those versions of love, some of them, not all, but some of those versions of love are, really aren't love at all. Maybe love only in some loose cultural American sense of the 21st century. Because love, because love, when love, if love, these are the conditional versions of love, right? I love you because, I love you because you're smart, you're funny, you're attractive. I love you because you got a cool job, you got a great career in front of you, you got a nice car. I love you because certainly a lesser version, right? Or I love you when, I love you when you smile like that. I love you when you remember our anniversary. I love you when you remember my birthday. I love you when, you get the picture. I love you when. Again, conditional. Version of love, yes, but a far cry from the agape we see in God. And if love, of course. I love you if. If you do this, if you say this, if you act this way, I'll love you. If not, nah. And that's part of the problem, really, I think, for us as we begin to talk about love in the context of God as believers. I mean, you could think, well, love is everywhere. As Chapman talked about, it is so ubiquitous in culture, in music, in song, on Netflix. So ubiquitous in culture. Why would we even need to talk about it in church? I mean, the world is talking about this all the time. The world has a lot to say about love. Well, we need to talk about it because the culture has some pretty warped ideas about what love is. And certainly, some of the versions of love that we experience most often in the workplace, in friendships, and even in our homes can look more like these other versions of love than they look like the love that we see in God, the unconditional agape love, a God who would die on a cross to save wretches like me. The real thing is captured, though, sometimes in culture. The real thing can be captured by the eyes of even 
a non-believer. One medical doctor blogged about this recently, about a scene that he got to witness. He wrote, It was a busy morning, approximately 8.30 a.m., when an elderly gentleman in his 80s arrived to have stitches removed from his thumb. He stated that he was in a hurry as he had an appointment at 9. I took his vital signs and had him take a seat, knowing that it would be over an hour before someone would be able to see him. I saw him look at his watch and decided, since I was not busy with another patient, that I would evaluate his wound. On exam, it was well healed, so I talked to one of the doctors, got the needed supplies to remove his sutures and redress his wound. While taking care of his wound, we began to engage in conversation. I asked him if he had another doctor's appointment this morning, as he was in such a hurry. The gentleman told me no. He said that he needed to go to the nursing home to eat breakfast with his wife. I then inquired as to her health, and he told me that she had been there for a while and that she was a victim of Alzheimer's disease. As we talked, I asked if if she would be upset if he was a little late, and he replied that she no longer knew who he was, that she had not recognized him in the last five years. I was surprised. And asked him, and you still go every morning even though she doesn't know who you are. He smiled as he patted my hand and said, she doesn't know me, but I still know who she is. I had to hold back tears as he left. I had goosebumps on my arm and thought, that is the kind of love I want in my life. You talk about no strings attached. And you've probably seen versions of that same story play out around you. Unconditional agape. The manifestation of those vows that couple exchanged so many years before on their wedding day till death do us part in sickness and in health. We promise to love till the end. One of my favorite quotes and I'm not going to read the whole thing. The rest of it's pretty great, so you can Google it and look it up. But one of my favorite quotes is this one from theologian Frederick Buchner. He says, listen to this. He says, of all powers, love is the most powerful and the most powerless. Of all the powers... Love is the most powerful and the most powerless. It's powerful because agape is divine love. It's from the heart of God. God is the source. It's powerful because it chooses to love not because of, not when, not if, but agape loves in spite of while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. And this love is the most powerless, isn't it? Agape is the most powerless because it gives 
It sacrifices. It's vulnerable. It opens itself up to be hurt, to be rejected, to be spat upon and nailed to a cross. Agape takes hits. Agape is the most powerless because it puts up with. It continues on even when it's not getting something in return. It's vulnerable. And that doctor noticed that the elderly gentleman loved his wife when there was no glimmer of hope that she was going to love him back at that point or remember his name, or remember who he was, but he kept on loving her because he knew who she was. He loved because he chose to love. He loved in spite of her situation. Agape love is a love that comes from the heart of the giver, not the merits of the receiver, not the lovability of the other. And so agape is this amazing amazing, beautiful thing that flows from the heart of God. And perhaps we need to recapture the truth that love isn't a one-size-fits-all sort of thing. That there are different ways that you can manifest even agape love into the life of another person. There are these unique languages, love languages that we speak and that through which we experience love. The way I feel loved may be totally different from the way that that you do. And if I'm going to fulfill these two commandments that Jesus gave me, then I need to get fluent in the other love languages, not just the ones I'm most comfortable with. Does that make sense? Next week, what we're going to do is we're going to start working through each of the different love languages. Um, But we had some important groundwork to lay first. And hopefully, we've been doing that the last two weeks. And uh, we've been getting some clarity on how not all of the loves are created (laughs) equal. And beyond that clarity, hopefully we've gotten a sense of our calling that to grow as authentic Christ followers, we've got to grow in love. Now, I have a bunch more stuff that I planned on sharing tonight, but I think this is a good place to cut it off because I was talking to John Scott as we were sitting there and I was like, you know, I think this is probably a little longish and we'll save a little bit for for next week and and we'll get into the first love language next week as well. But what I'd wanted to share with you is the idea of the love bank and we'll we'll talk about that next week and we'll talk about... um, one of the love languages as well. But tonight, let's, let's just worship and let's just bask in the agape that, that the Lord has for us as we stand together and we sing His praises.